Okay, well, I guess I'll start because I'm not sure if I'm supposed to. My name is Don Ruth and you're wondering who this random person is. I'm in Volcanoes and I actually um, invited Raphael to give a talk um, because I know him from my postdoc and his postdoc in Singapore. So Raphael is coming to us all the way from Ecuador. He did his, um, he was actually originally from Venezuela where he did his undergrad at the Universidad de los Andes um, and getting a BS in geological engineering. Um, he went on to Texas A&M. He's an Aggie um, doing his master's. He worked on the San Andreas fault um, borehole, uh, looking at microstructural analysis. Um, he then moved to New York, so he's been all over the place. He got his PhD at the, Earth Obser uh, the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia, working in uh, the central basin and range. So he's actually spending all tectonic environments because then he moved to Singapore where he worked at the Earth Observatory, working at, um, in the Himalayans, um, uh, working in Nepal and Bangladesh. He also did a lot of method um, development, working with um, seismic buggies, um, and then also working with a lot of people on um, INSAR, um, assessment of deformation. So right now he's a, an assistant professor at Yachay Tech University in Ecuador, um, looking at active and ancient deformation processes in the Andes. And this fall he'll be moving to, officially moving to San Diego State um, as an assistant professor there. So I wanted to welcome uh, Rafa and he's going to be talking to us about Ecuador's seismogenic faults. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction, Don. Uh, Don. Um, it's really great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, it's really nice to, to be a part of this seminar series. Um, I'm going to talk mostly today about uh, Ecuadorian seismogenic faults, and I'm going to really be posing more questions and answers. But before that, I would like to um, talk a little bit about work that I've done previously before coming to Ecuador when I was in uh, Singapore. And this is just more um, as a way to kind of introduce myself so that, um, you know, hopefully we can uh, set up future collaborations with any of the many people that are here. So as Don mentioned, I, I did basin and range stuff for my PhD. So I have like a previous life as a old, um, old geology person. But then when I moved to Singapore, um, I really switched gears to look at active deformation and going into active tectonics. So it was a really um, interesting kind of uh, switch in direction because it really um, you can kind of really see the impact societal impact of what of what you're doing as I'm sure you guys um, who work everybody there works in that can can attest to so um, here's a brief overview of of um, what I'm going to talk about today so I'm gonna uh, give a brief talk about the relationship between earthquakes and geology of the Nepal Himalaya which I worked on for a long time um, then I'm going to briefly talk about shallow coupling and subduction zones. This is this was a, a project that we kind of started um, when I was wrapping up in Singapore, and there's been um, a few uh, interesting papers coming out on that, including one that came out just uh, like three days ago in Nature Geoscience. And then I'm going to talk about Ecuadorian seismicity. So really what I'm going to do here more than answer um, questions is, is, is pose them, right? And I just want to... Um, set up a comparison with Sumatra because it's a very uh, similar region tectonically, geographically, physio uh, physiographically. 
yet um, it's very different when we look at, at surface trace of, of faults there. So I want to set up that comparison, show you kind of what the history of, of seismicity is here, and then um, show a few projects that I have ongoing with, with students here, um, undergraduate students, to try to help solve the question. So to start off with uh, the Himalayas, um, you know, everybody here is probably familiar with the Gorkha earthquake. The sixth anniversary was just a couple of weeks ago, but this was one of the first earthquakes that had really, really nice um, geodetic as well as seismological um, data coverage. Um, Nepal had a has a pretty good GPS um, uh, back, backbone network. Um, there's really good um, sentinel data uh, before and after the earthquake. So, so it really spawned a lot of geophysical studies. And the nice thing is that all the geophysical studies were really consistent, right? It didn't matter if you use seismological and geodetic data, just geodetic data, just seismological data. Everything was um, really consistent in the fault slip inversion that resulted, right? And it ended up in this kind of elongated east-west patch um, that ruptured a fairly flat part of the MHT, right, which is the main Himalayan thrust. And the depth, which was pretty important, was also consistent, came out at about 15 kilometers depth. So when we compared this to existing crustal cross sections in the Himalaya, uh, they didn't really match at all. So here we can see two cross sections that were drawn <clears throat> that were drawn through the Kathmandu Klippa, so in central Nepal, central eastern Nepal. And the, the heavy dashed black line there represents the MHT, which is the main Himalayan thrust. And again, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Himalayan geology, this is um, this is the, the the main fault that represents the contact between the Indian downgoing plate and the Asian overriding plate here. Um, so in, in the models that existed previously prior to the Gorkha earthquake, um, the MHT was thought to be much deeper than it actually was, right? The, the red line, the heavy red line there represents the depth of the of the MHT from all these geophysical inversions that I just showed you before. So um, this led us to to try to make a new cross section, right? Let's let's see what we can learn using this earthquake, right? We have now the benefit of the earthquake, which previous researchers did not have in this in this part of the world. So this is just a very basic crash course in uh, Nepali geology, Himalayan geology. There are three um, main uh, litho tectonic units. All these kind of light pinks in the north are what's called the greater Himalayan sequence, and those are high-grade metamorphic rocks which form the core of the origin. Then you have the gray rocks that are in between the red and the yellow lines there, and um, gray and that kind of also dull pink. Those are the lesser Himalayan rocks, so those are Proterozoic rocks that used to be part of the Indian passive margin and have been incorporated into orogenic wedge. And then finally, between the red line and the green line, you have these um, orangey colors, and that is the Siwaliks. So Siwaliks is the foreland fold and thrust belt, and it represents the really the rocks that have been that are being deposited in the Gangetic Basin um, that are being incorporated now into the Himalaya. So those three units are separated by three faults called the MCT, the main central thrust, which underlies the greater Himalayan rocks, the main boundary thrust, which underlie the lesser Himalayan rocks, and then the main frontal thrust, which underlies the Siwalik rocks. So this is just a, a, a picture from an airplane 
where we can see kind of the the um, physiographic expression of each one of these units. So the the high mountains in the background, which form kind of the the um, the high peaks of the Himalaya, you can just see the snow-capped peaks are all greater uh, greater Himalayan rocks. Then you have this kind of intermediate elevation area in the middle, which in Nepal are referred to as the Midlands, and that's the lesser Himalayan rocks. And then you have uh, in the most frontal part, and you can it's really um, highlighted by the rivers. You can see how the rivers become encased as they go through the Siwaliks, and then they widen as they leave the Siwaliks. So this is the the lowest elevation. This is a part of Nepal that used to be um, fairly sparsely populated um, because it was malaria infested. So with the advent of DDT in the 60s, this area really opened up to population um, uh, to population growth. And now there's a really important part of the Nepali population lives in the lowlands. So um, we did a new structural cross-section here. I'm not going to uh, really focus on the details. That'd be too much for this talk, but um, we're kind of focusing on the brittle deformation. We're not going to focus too much on the ductile deformation, which is quite evident in the core of the Himalaya. So we came up with this new structural cross-section um, across the Himalayan rocks. Here you can see it superposed on a uh, block diagram with a perspective view of the, of the geology, the surface geology of Nepal here. Um, and then, you know, this, we asked ourselves, could we extend this 2D view, right? There's, there's a, an inherent problem with these type of cross sections is that we tend to kind of um, assume that we have a cylindrical feature, right? We have a feature that doesn't really vary along strike, but fold and thrust belts can actually be, you know, highly variable in 3D, right? So how do we take this 2D model and turn it into a 3D model without building, you know, uh, 100 cross sections, which is can be very tedious and time consuming. And not to mention that we we drew the cross section where we drew it because that's where we had the most data. There are large parts of Nepal that are very inaccessible and you don't really have the surface data required to make a good cross section. So what we decided to do was to use uh, surface proxies um, to extend our, our, our cross section in 3D. So we have the main boundary thrust, which is the thrust that um, separates the lesser Himalaya from the Siwaliks, and that main boundary thrust outcrops, um, outcrops here between the yellows and the, and the grays right here. And we can use that as a proxy for this middle ramp in, in, the, in the MHT. And then we have this, this large anticlinorium, which is called the Gorka Popra anticlinorium. And that's where we have the deepest rocks um, of the lesser Himalaya outcrop. And that um, feature is a proxy for this duplex, what's called the Lesser Himalayan Duplex in uh, Himalayan, Himalayan um, uh, geology kind of terminology. So the, the, the Lesser Himalayan Duplex then in the subsurface, the proxy at the surface is the Gorka Pokhara Anticlinorium. So once we apply these two, these two proxies, then we can actually come up with a 3D model of of the MHT, right, at depth. So the active, this is the active MHT surface. This is not including splay faults that are no longer active or, or, or abandoned thrust faults, right? This is what we are interpreting to be the active surface of slip. When we superpose these really nicely constrained um, slip models of the Gorka earthquake onto this uh, fault, what we find is that this kind of patch of flat fault right here in the middle in between 85 and 86 degrees east corresponds almost perfectly 
to the slip patch of the Gorka earthquake. So this was this was really interesting because the Gorka earthquake is thought to be one of the kind of few examples in in um, uh, Himalayan seismicity of what we might call a characteristic earthquake. Even though I'm not a big fan of that of that term, but it is an earthquake that is thought um, to have repeated several times in recorded history of Nepal, and it's right under Kathmandu. So you have these historical records of earthquakes that happen about every 150 years that keep destroying Kathmandu, and you know we know because they kill the king. So you know those things are are pretty well recorded um, when, when it happens. So what we think is that this patch. Right, that is being defined there um, in the MHT model is actually this kind of unique little fault patch that that breaks um, independent of the rest of the MHT. So this this idea we compared it to a lot of uh, existing geophysical data that came out from those studies. I, I just checked today. There's over four thousand studies right now, papers that have been published with Gorka earthquake in their title. So this earthquake has really really been thoroughly studied. Um, this is high energy frequency radiation, so um, this is generally thought to happen wherever you have an irregularity in the fault or when you break a patch with different frictional properties. Although there was recently a pretty interesting paper by Victor Sai arguing that high frequency radiation actually comes from um, uh, essentially pieces of rock within the fault zone that interact during slip and generate that radiation. But, um, you know, for, for the purpose here, we're going to think we're going to assume that it has to do with uh, geometric changes in the fault. And what we can see here is that the high frequency radiation from um, different studies actually show that you have this curved area that borders the northern end of the fault that we would argue corresponds right to where we change from a flat to a ramp in the MHT and that is generating the high frequency radiation. Likewise, when we look at uh, really detailed aftershock studies with focal mechanisms that, that were done shortly after the earthquake, we can see that the depths and the dips of the fault actually correspond really nicely with this ramp, ramp flat ramp um, model that we're proposing um, here in this, in this study. And likewise, when you do a geodetic inversion, so usually the geodetic inversion, you assume the geometry of the fault and you invert for the slip. So these guys flipped, flipped that. They, they assumed that they know the slip distribution and then they inverted for the geometry of the fault. So what they found was also that you had a very flat patch and then just at the southern end of the fault, you had this very this, this steep, you know, about 25 degrees, so about corresponding what we would think of a thrust ramp uh, bounding the southern, the southern end of the fault. So this was all pretty consistent with our model. So it makes us think that this, um, this is uh, um, pretty, you know, we think it's pretty solid and it's important because then it, it shows us how this geometry um, can really um, affect the seismogenic um, extent of, of an earthquake, right? So of a fault. So um, a lot of papers that you read about how fault, how, how far a fault will go really focus only on frictional properties of the fault. So this paper was trying to, you know, we're trying to say, yes, that is important, but also the geometry of the fault, the, the rocks um, are also important in this in this case. So from that kind of deep perspective, we jump to the most frontal part of the Himalaya, so the MFT. And here um, we're really focusing on the MFT because there's been a lot of studies in the last decade that suggest that 
um, all the big Himalayan thrusts, uh, thrust earthquakes, actually the slip reaches the surface at the MFT. This was not clear. If we actually look at Himalayan literature from the 80s, um, a lot of people thought that the slip just kind of propagated under northern India. And this had to do with um, landslide distribution after the 1934 earthquake. But the idea was that there was just a flat that just kind of petered out under northern India and the slip was propagated that far south. But um, several trenching papers starting like in the mid aughts um, showed really convincing, compelling evidence that the, the slip was actually reaching the surface at the MFT. So to study the MFT, we we um, in Singapore, they they had a mini buggy. So this is a seismic um, a seismic vibrosized source, a small a small one compared to the ones used in industry. So we just acquired a bunch of serial lines throughout the MFT to try to try to see what you know see what we see. Um, really good reflectivity. Um, this is what the rocks look like. These siwalik rocks are um, fluvial uh, fluvial sediments. So you just get your nice thick channeled sands interbedded with nice thick floodplain deposits um, and that that alternation gives you a really good uh, impedance contrast and you get these really nice um, these really nice reflections coming off uh, the subsurface. So I'm just going to focus on one line here and this was kind of our, our longest line. It's about 13 kilometers long. We can see we have really good imaging to about two kilometers depth and what we found is that in contrast to kind of the the paradigm until that moment that the the Dekoman underneath the the Siwaliks was about five kilometers depth. We found pretty clear evidence that it's really about two kilometers beneath the surface. Um, we can see this um, in the fold geometry um, that that we can observe both in the seismic as well as using surface measurements, which are these kind of pink little ticks that you can't see very well. Probably um, it was all pretty pretty consistent. The other thing that we saw is that we have two very contrasting styles of folding here. We have, um, you know, what's called generally a shear fold, where you have a, a lower layer that's accommodating part of the of the slip um, by distributed shear, and that gives you kind of a very broad fold versus, um, you know, what's generally referred to as king fold, kind of the more suppy style folding where right at the axial, um, at the change in dip of the fault to get an axial plane where most of the of the folding happens. So it's interesting that the surface ruptures are generally found right where you have your kink style folds and almost never where you have these shear folds, right? When you do a survey across the Nepali, the Nepali range front. So, you know, does this reflect seismic versus aseismic growth? It's really hard to tell, and, and I'm going to talk about why why it's hard when I when we talk about subduction zones in a bit. Um, and then the other thing is that then there must be another ramp in the fault because we know that the fault um, dives down to five kilometers based on the rocks that are uplifted or exposed at the surface a little further north here. So um, you know here this was kind of the old model where you just have one decomont going all the way to the front, and this is kind of what we propose where you have one step here and then another step here. So if this deeper step is limiting the extent of, of the Gorka earthquake, right? Does that mean if we have a shallow earthquake, could it also um, this step that we have here where you go from about two to five kilometers, could that also limit the extent of a seismic rupture, right? So these are, um, again, uh, a few questions. It's really hard to, the, I think th these are things that are probably best modeled using um, seismic 
seismic cycles modeling, which is way out of my expertise. Uh, but those were kind of interesting results that we got in the Himalaya. I'm going to do a switch of gears here, and um, I'm going to talk about subduction zone. So the Himalaya is kind of analogous to a subduction zone in the sense that the MHT is the mega thrust, right? So it's the mega thrust that we find in the subduction zone between the downgoing plate and the overriding plate, except that it's it's exposed at the surface, and um, the geometry is going to be a little more complicated because we're going to have kind of old rocks. Um, with a lot of anisotropy in their in their strength, um, creating ramps and flats that maybe um, we don't we won't see as much within a subducting um, slab, where really the shape of the slab is the main kind of anisotropy that's creating the that's creating the um, the mega thrust geometry or or constraining the mega thrust geometry. However, it is it is um, useful nonetheless because the the frictional properties should be somewhat similar, right? So one of the curious things that we find about the Himalaya, or maybe not curious, but one of the observations that has been made for a long time is that the fault is completely coupled to the surface, right? And, and there we actually have measurements, right? It's like, it's like as if we had measurements all the way to the trench in the subsurface. In the Himalaya, we have measurements all the way to the MFT. So we have a pretty good constraint on the, on the geodetic signal at the surface. And there it shows that um, the fault is coupled all the way, right? So that has long been um, used uh, to, to argue then that the whole fault must be velocity uh, weakening, right? And therefore, when you have a big earthquake, that whole area of fault is possibly a source of um, um, seismic energy, right? That can be released seismogenically. And this, of course, then uh, results in that we have huge seismic deficits in the Himalaya. Several authors have written about this. And if you look at just the um, released seismic moment over the last thousand years, it is, um, you know, it is less than half of what has been accumulated over that same time span. So, um, you know, how much of the fault is actually seismogenic is, is a really um, important question for these things. So thinking about this, uh, in the Himalayas, uh, me and Eric Lindsay, who was another postdoc at Singapore, got, got talking about this. And um, we came up with this model of a stress shadow. So the idea is that um, when you look at these uh, coupling inversions, so here's an example from Sumatra, from uh, the coast of Ecuador, from Cascadia. What you tend to see is that you have these um, bullseyes of coupling. So the deep transition of the fault is highly coupled. And then the coupling uh, tends to go to zero at the trench, right? This is this is a very fairly common pattern that is observed. However, if you look at the uncertainties related to those models, there is pretty much zero um, constraints on the uh, trenchward coupling. So that means that whatever parameters, however you parameterize your your model, your inversion to to create the coupling map, that's going to really determine what what the trench. Um, what the trench coupling looks like. So if you try to minimize the moment, then you're going to get uh, models like this, where you have um, uh, no no slip. Uh, sorry, you have no coupling at the trench. So the inference then is that you have full full slip there. And the issue here is that then these maps are used to infer tsunami hazard. Have a map like this of Ecuador, and then you'll say, okay, there's no 
there's there's no coupling at the trench, therefore there's probably no tsunami hazard in this part of the world, and vice versa if you do have coupling all the way to the trench. So what Eric and I kind of um, proposed was that actually if you have a stress shadow at the bottom, so if you have a deep patch in the fault that is completely locked, that's going to create uh, a stress shadow that's not really going to allow the shallow part of the fault to creep, even if it is um, completely unlocked. Like let's if frictionally, you know, for a long time people have assumed that the frictional properties of a shallow thrust are different from deep thrust based on the the clay mineralogy. And um, even in these cases where you have a fault that's completely velocity uh, strengthening from a rate and state perspective, there would be no creep or at least um, creep that is uh, below our measuring resolution there just because of this shadow, this, this shadow effect, okay? So the corollary to this is that um, even if we could measure fault slip all the way to the trench, it really gives us no information about the frictional or mechanical properties of the shallow fault, right? So we cannot we cannot really um, infer whether an area is prone or not to these tsunami earthquakes, right? Which are generally thought to be these kind of really, these earthquakes that have a shallow, a, a lot of shallow slip that generate tsunamis that are um, out of proportion for the size of the earthquake based on these on these type of measurements. So this was, um, you know, a paper from a few years ago, and we just compared it to um, underwater geodetic measurements taken off, um, off Japan. <clears throat> and of course, these errors are quite large, right? Because the measurements are not are not as um, tightly constrained as the on-land measurements. But what we can see here is that if you have a fault that's completely coupled, which would be this black line, versus a fault that has um, an area that is about 20% completely free, right? So this would be the end member where the fault has like zero friction versus a fault that has 40% of the fault with zero friction. None of those measurements will actually be constrained by these underwater um, geodetic uh, uh, observations that are that are being made right now, right? So, um, so the the bottom, you know, the the bottom line of this kind of these studies, and in this paper by Eric was one that was published just just a week ago, um, where he kind of redid several of these coupling maps, just applying this constraint that that you need to have this stress shadow. The only way to get around the stress shadow is to have a source of extension within the wedge, right? Which which is pretty unphysical in the overall compressive tectonic environment. So um, the bottom line is that most coupling models are probably going to look like this, where you have um, a completely locked shallow subduction zone, right? Up dip of our of our locked um, deep deep patches, and this is just um, you know Eric comparing when he applies this kind of physical um constraint that you can't have extension within the wedge then your uncertainties really go down um this is this is the uncertainty if you don't apply that constraint versus if you do apply that constraint and then you get these really these locked shallow patches but it doesn't really tell us anything about the the physical properties of the subduction zone so, um, so you know, it's it's kind of an interesting result, but at the same time, it's a little disheartening because you know it kind of takes away one tool that we have or we think we have. 
Okay, so that's kind of what I've done before. So I'm going to just kind of switch gears, go go again, and go into the geology of Ecuador, right? So um, again, I'm going to assume here that um, none of you or few of you are familiar with the geology of Ecuador. So in very broad terms, Ecuador can be divided into three tectonic provinces. We have the coast of Ecuador, which corresponds to the forearc, right? So this forearc um, has been uplifted. It's actually a subaerial forearc, which is which is not very common in subduction zones. And this um, is thought to be um, caused by the subduction of the Carnegie Ridge, right? Is this Carnegie Ridge is a hotspot track where the Nazca plate is interacting with the Galapagos hotspot and is being subducted. So we have our coast, what's called here the coastal region. Then we have the Andes, right, which is a modern volcanic arc. And then we have the uh, Oriente or Eastern Basin, which is underlain by South American craton. Um, the Andes, sensu stricto, so strictly, strictly speaking, is divided into two ranges. So here we have a, um, a topographic profile across the Andes, we can see that there's a western range right here, and that western range is formed by um, an oceanic terrain that collided at the end of the Cretaceous with South America. It's thought to be the Caribbean Oceanic Plateau that then translated northward and then now forms the Caribbean Plate. Then we have our Interandian Valley, which is this kind of high valley um, in the middle of the Andes here. And then we have what's called the Eastern or Real Cordillera, Cordillera Real. And those are metamorphic and plutonic rocks, and those form the old Mesozoic, um, the old Mesozoic arc that existed prior to the collision at the end of the Cretaceous. So Ecuador is not an easy place to do fieldwork. It's very you have a lot of very rugged terrain. You have lots of volcanoes. Ecuador, I think, has um, one of the highest or the highest density of volcanoes in the world, like if you look at this map, all of those white patches are quaternary volcanoes. So it's very, everything is covered by, um, if you're a volcanologist, it's fantastic. If you're not a volcanologist, it's, it's really annoying because it's really hard to find outcrops that um, show you kind of the, the the underlying geology. So this is an example of uh, a very touristic waterfall, but um, Tunguraba volcano was a volcano that had a really prominent kind of, um, 10-year-long eruptive cycle in the in the aughts here. Um, it's, you know, it goes up to 6,000 meters. It's a beast of a volcano. But if you go deep enough into these uh, incised valleys, this right here represents the base of Tungurawa volcano. So everything below it are <clears throat> metamorphic rocks of South American craton affinity. And then you have these very sharp boundaries. And then you go into all these volcanic rocks at the top. So so you can find places where you can where you can see the underlying geology, but it's not easy. And then when you don't have the steep relief, you have the jungle, right, that you can see in the background. So that's a huge caveat, right? I'm going to talk about how we, we can't really find the seismogenic faults in large parts of the Indian Valley, but um, it's a complicated place to work. So the North Andean block in particular is, is the northwest corner of South America. And it is thought to, um, you know, or not thought to, it comprises essentially most of Ecuador, um, eastern Colombia, and northwestern Venezuela right here. So it's this kind of shaded area here. And this block is thought to behave as a coherent block, and it's moving towards the northwest as um, a response to the obliquity of the subduction of the Nazca Plate under South America. 
um, and also due to this kind of increase in normal stress across the, the, the mega thrust due to the subduction of the Carnegie Ridge. The, the fault system that's kind of created by this movement um, has been highlighted here in red. This is a paper from Alvarado 2016. And generally, these faults are kind of shown like this at a regional scale, right? We know we have a few of these sections, like the, the Chingual fault right here, I'm going to highlight. This Payatanga fault right here, I'm going to highlight, have been well studied. We know where the fault is, but right here, this whole block in the middle is kind of a question mark. We know there's seismicity. I'm going to, I'm going to show it in a few slides, but where are the faults is, is one of the big questions um, here. So the North Andean the North Andean block has been proposed for for a while. Pennington in 1981 was the first person to kind of um, propose that this these this large area was moving coherently to the north. But it wasn't until maybe the last decade where there was enough geodetic studies to really show the movement of this block. So um, here we have um, this is a paper from Noquera 2014. They're just showing kind of the, the distribution of historical earthquakes along the subduction zone here and then surface um, geodesy measurements. So these are permanent and, and temporary GPS stations. And what we can see, these are all relative to South America, that when you're on the coastal part of Ecuador, these arrows, you know, it's really going. But then once you hit the eastern part, everything is fixed to South America, right? So based on this, you know, they, 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 they proposed two slivers. They proposed a, what they call an Inca sliver, which is much more fuzzy. It's much less well-defined in the south. And then you have the North Andean block, which, which as I mentioned, has been, you know, proposed at least um, theoretically for the past 40 years. So this is a weird view of Northwestern South America. So please note that the north is pointing here to the bottom left. But this encompasses the whole North Andean block. So right here on the um, southern side, we have the Gulf of Guayaquil. This is something that I want to highlight here. Then we have the Andean range of Ecuador. We go into Colombia, where the Andes are separated into three distinct cordilleras. And then we go into northwestern Venezuela right here. So I'm going to, in a few slides, I'm going to show you um, uh, a zoom in of this area, because this is probably the only part of the fault that bounds the North Andean block that is really clear. So we have the Bocono fault, where even at this scale, you can just see this strike slip fault ripping through uh, the Merida Andes there. In contrast, um, here's Sumatra. So these two previous maps are, are at the same scale, right? So just, you know, Sumatra is about the same scale as the North Andean block. It is, it is really a big island right here. And at that same scale, <clears throat> we can see the Sumatran fault ripping right through um, the southern, or, or sorry, not the southern, the uh, eastern part of the island, right? Hopefully um, it is it is clear here. We have this light colored linear valley um, going, going um, on the eastern side of the island. And it ends right here in um, what are called the Sunda Straits, okay? So the Sunda Straits is analogous to the Gulf of Guayaquil. They both represent a extensional horse horse play horse tail splay uh, structure at the end of strike slip fault right so essentially we're creating a pull apart basin right where the this strike slip fault which is carrying a four arc sliver is um is creating extension right so i'm just going to go back one 
just so we can compare once again. So the Gulf of Guayaquil is also, there's much more sediments going in there. So it's not as, as nicely, um, you don't see it in the bathymetry as, as nicely as you see the Sunda Straits, but there's a lot of seismic here. So, so it's really well, um, well characterized. So why this sharp difference in morphology? Ever since I moved to Ecuador a couple of years ago, this has really struck me because in Sumatra, you know, the fault is so clear. And here, um, you know, it's not really clear at all in the field. When you go to the field, it's very, very difficult to see. Um, you know, I thought they both have volcanoes. They're both covered with jungle. Why do we get it in one place and not the other, right? So the pull-apart basins, which we could use as a rough proxy for the amount of slip on the fault, which would usually be the first thing you would think about to determine how mature a fault is, is about the same size in both in both the Sumatra Straits and the Gulf of Guayaquil. The slips are similar. Um, Sumatra fault is a little faster, but not that much faster, right? We're talking about approximately 15 versus approximately 10 millimeters per year. And the one difference, the only thing that I can think of that's really um, constraining this is the crustal thickness. The, the uh, Sumatra is one of those rare um, uh, arcs that is actually almost entirely at sea level. So uh, the crust there is about 30 to 35 kilometers thick, while in the Andes, the crust is about 60. Some people have argued that it can be up to 70 kilometers thick. So the proxy that we usually use of slip, um, of, of slip determining the, the, the maturity of the fault, here we have to actually think of another parameter, which is not just the amount of horizontal slip, but how does that horizontal slip relate to this, um, you know, going through the, the the whole crust in this region. So I think that's going to be the main cause why we have this kind of immature fault system, the Inter-Andean Valley fault system, which, um, you know, the, the result of that is that's hard to find at the surface where the, the faults are, okay? So this is just a zoom in of what I was mentioning, the Bocono fault in Venezuela. That one is clear. You can see it just like the Sumatra fault, but pretty much nowhere else in the North Andean block, that's the case. So in Ecuador, two areas have been pretty well studied um, for this fault. One of them is what's called the Payatanga section. And here I just have, um, you know, a, a shaded terrain. So where we can see this, this linear valley, um, Stephen Bays and colleagues, they did several trenches there. They found evidence of quaternary ruptures. Um, and this is kind of where the, the fault crosses the range front. So it's thought to be pretty well constrained there. And then um, geomorphically uh, speaking, this has been really poorly studied, but it's geomorphically really nicely defined, the La Sofia section, where we have a really nice linear valley that goes from Cayambe volcano. So this is um, a volcano that's been active in the Quaternary. Um, and that might be might play a role in localizing the deformation right here along, along this section. You have this linear valley that cuts right through the Cordillera Real. So it goes all through these metamorphic and plutonic rocks, right? Which is a little counterintuitive because we have this big suture zone just to the west, right? That you'd think would provide the, the, the plane of weakness for this type of deformation. But instead, the fault cuts right through this rigid block of gneisses, schists, and, um, and granitoids, right? So, you know, that was, that was interesting. So we're going to focus on that in a, in a, in a minute. There's a lot of um, there's been a lot of seismicity in the Inter-Andean Valley, right? So so you know there's reason to believe that between this Payatanga section that is um, at the bottom 
of the map on the left in, in blue, dark blue. And this Sofia Chingual section, which is the, the second uh, map that I showed you, which is in yellow here, there's reason to believe that there's probably some faults underlying the Intrandian Valley. The other faults that have been highlighted here, the um, Yanganates, these are faults already kind of in the sub-Andean. And the earthquakes that have happened here, this 1987, 1955, those are thrust earthquakes. So not really related directly to the motion of the North Andean block. We can see um, in the historical record there have been very large earthquakes that have destroyed um, several cities. So where I live right now is this blue dot right here, the 1868, the northernmost fault. And that was a big earthquake that destroyed the city of Ibarra, just completely wiped it out in 1868. Riobamba, which was um, one of the, um, you know, one of the early cities, very important for independence, where the first constitution was drafted in Ecuador, was completely wiped out by an earthquake in 1797. Quito was affected by a big earthquake in 1587. So in the last 500 years, there have been large earthquakes that have affected areas that right now are very important population centers. However, we do not know what the seismogenic faults that caused these earthquakes are. Okay. On the right, we can see the instrumental catalog, and we can see that most of the earthquakes are focused on the trench. So the subduction zone seismicity is pretty well understood. There's been uh, a lot of studies on that. The the IHE, the Instituto Geofisico, they have the they they run the monitoring system in Ecuador. It is a really um, good system. It has few stations in the east, but everything that's kind of within the mountains and the coast, they have they have um, you know a really uh, it's not super dense, but it is it is dense enough. But we can see that all we have are like clouds of seismicity, right? So even though we have that that monitoring system, it's not really enough to highlight kind of trends of background seismicity that might let us constrain um, these faults, right? And it, this is more than just kind of like a, a you know semantics, so to speak, right? Like where where exactly is the fault? Does it really matter? So this is a plot from the Chichi earthquake in 1999, and this just shows how quickly the fatality uh, rate decreases as you move away from the surface trace of the fault, right? And we can see that this is especially important when we're talking about adobe houses. So the Interandian Valley of Ecuador hosts about half the population. And um, outside of the city, so once you go into the rural areas, most of the housing is adobe, right? You have adobe, you have um, masonry houses that tend to collapse during earthquakes, right? So the better we can uh, constrain the location of these faults, right? Then it's it's easier to kind of come up come up with models of um, what type of of housing and what type of fatality rates we might expect if we have. Um, an earthquake on those faults. So this is this is um, you know a pretty important task. So to kind of um, close the talk, I'm just going to talk about five projects that I have been doing with students here. So these are undergrad students for their theses, and um, just trying to kind of constrain um, different parts of this. And in the last slide, we'll kind of see how how it all comes together. So the first part is a quantitative analysis of the fluvial systems to, to look at this Guayabamba depression. So this is Quito right here on the left. So Quito is the capital of Ecuador, several million people. It is the second largest city in the country. 
Um, it is perched upon a uplifted, uh, it's like a piggyback basin. So there's about a 400 meter difference between the valleys on the right hand of your of your screen versus the city on the on the left hand. And this whole uh, the whole city is underlain by what's called the Quito fault system. We have these uh, really beautiful um, folds at the surface that are uh, folding ahead of the tip of this of this blind fault. There's been a lot of really good studies done constraining this compressional system. However, the relation between this compressional system and the strike slip strike slip system is really um, unconstrained. So some maps draw a few strike slip faults through the Guayabamba depression, which is this big hole in the ground where the, the you know, everything just drops a few hundred meters um, along these massive landslide scarps that we have here highlighted in yellow. But, you know, when you go to the field, you don't really see evidence of these strike slip faults. So most likely they're just kind of mapping um, alignments in, in the river, but it's really hard to sustain, you know, to uh, verify that with with field studies. So what we're trying to do is leverage these these kind of new morphometric analyses that are being developed for rivers, especially the group out of Edinburgh that has developed this this tool called LSD Topo Tools, and they take advantage of this formulation of uh, river uh, morphology done by Lee Royden's group at MIT um, about 10, 15 years ago. And it's a really powerful tool to try to find specific areas where rivers are out of equilibrium. So we're taking advantage that Ecuador has a really nice uh, countrywide three meter resolution DEM that, that the Ministry of Agriculture was, was able to provide to us. And we're using that to try to do this morphometric analysis of all these rivers in the outskirts of Quito to see if, um, if actually this depression is caused by tectonics, right, by, by strike slip faults, uh, as has been proposed, or just by surface processes. These are um, everything here. You have hundreds of meters of essentially um, ash, ash and volcanoclastic deposits that create, you know, these rivers in sizes very quickly. They create very steep walls. And what we think is happening, actually, that these ju this just leads to collapses of very large landslides um, that are completely driven by surface processes and not by tectonics. Um, evidence of active faulting in the La Sofia segments. So this is where I told you guys that the fault was cutting through these metamorphic and plutonic rocks. So I had a student go out there and measure essentially all he could about ductile fabrics, which are really nicely exposed. We can see here we have myelinites developed. In the granitoids, there's lots of hydrothermal exposure, uh, hydrothermal alteration, um, lots of ductile deformation, and you can see very widespread brittle deformation as well. So um, I had a student go out there. He did a very um, thorough job, spent a couple of months in that very remote place. And what we came up with was that the active brittle fabric essentially follows the ductile fabric. So the question as to why do we have these strike slip faults all of a sudden cutting across this rigid block that is the Cordillera Real? The, question, the answer to that seems to be that the, the ductile fabric in those rocks was very favorable to um, be reactivated and in the strike slip motion required by the North Andean block. So we can see that the, the fabrics are virtually identical. So, um, you know, there is some constraint on the timing. We know the fault is active, but it is a very, very immature system. There is no kind of 
nice big fault core that you can really kind of mine for 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 information. You just have you know hundreds of little fault strands, kind of subparallel fault strands that are being um, that are being formed here. We're looking at intramontane basin formation. So within this intra-Andean valley, there are um, these basins that are that are forming or old basins that have been formed and now are uplifted, right? So they are square in the middle of the valley. So we are um, operating under the assumption that these basin formation and uplift are reflecting uh, fault dynamics within the inter-Andean valley. So this particular valley is called the Chota Valley in northern Ecuador. So here are two students for scale. This is a really kind of impressive area to work in. Um, and what we have found, what the students have found in their work, is that um, we have basins here, at least in northern Ecuador, that, that have been kind of accordioned. They form as half grobbins, then they were inverted. We have, you know, um, really uh, nice evidence of compression. And um, the last thing that happened was they were uplifted by a lot of uh, these large normal faults that are exposing the stratigraphy now. So we have this uh, extension, compression extension, which we are interpreting to be related to um, kind of bends in a big strike slip system, right? However, we need ages to be able to to make to put this in a more temporal framework. So we're you know we have the rocks now. We're right now just trying to figure out how to get some of these things dated, things dated. to get to get a better, better. Um, idea of that. Then we have an NSAR analysis where we have a student from the computer science department who is trying to um, to do NSAR of northern Ecuador, but Sentinel data has not been really useful. Um, you know, the wavelength of the C-band used by Sentinel is, is very short. So, um, you know, we have forested areas, we have agricultural areas that are constantly, the ground is being tilled. So uh, we get really poor coherence. So we actually have, uh, um, you know, we got uh, a bunch of ALOS data from JAXA, which uses L-band. It's a longer wavelength. Um, so, you know, this has been used really successfully to look at through forests. So we're hoping this will be um, a much more promising approach. And then finally, we're, we want to look at the um, deformation in the sub-Andes, right? So we know the sub-Andes is kind of a back arc fold and thrust belt in the eastern part of Ecuador. And, um, you know, we've just done some exploratory fieldwork there, but there's um, really beautiful uplifted river terraces. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, geomorphic features that suggest active shortening here. On top of that, we have the big earthquakes of 1987, 1955, which are thrust earthquakes in this area. So it's a really tough area to work. It's jungle, it's hot. Um, so I haven't, unsurprisingly, I haven't had any students uh, bite the hook yet for that project, but hopefully that that's one in the future. So, so you know, let's wrap it up. Where are the faults, right? So these all these projects are kind of focused in northern Ecuador. Each one of these dots corresponds to one of these five projects that I mentioned to you. So we have here the La Sofia Fault, where the fault cuts through the Cordillera Real. We have the Chota Basin right adjacent to Cordillera Real, where we think we are reflecting fault dynamics from the Pliocene. Um, and then we're looking here as to whether there's our strike slip faults right adjacent to Quito. And then finally, the box represents kind of our INSAR, uh, the footprint of the INSAR study that we're doing that we hope will answer most, most que more questions. So where are the faults? We don't know yet, right? But we're really hoping that this multi-pronged approach will help us figure it out and 
you know, this is a really diverse um, crowd. Um, I'm really happy to be able to speak to you. So to, to speak to you. So if anybody has any ideas, um, I am all ears and they are very welcome. So thank you very much for your attention. Um, here's my email. Um, I'll take any questions now. Thank you, Rafael, for that presentation. It was very interesting. Um, we now have some time for questions. If anybody has any questions for Rafael, please either raise your hand or type it into the chat. Uh, and then we can call on you to unmute and show your video and you can uh, read it yourself or we can read it out for you. Um, to start things off, I have one. Um, and I guess this is sort of a big picture tectonics question. Um, from the examples you provided there at the end, it seems like you're looking primarily at strike slip structures in the core of the range and then thrust structures on the flanks. Um, is that do does it really seem like the the sort of slip is partitioned like that? Is that a real effect or is that just a product of the faults you happen to have identified? Um, and if it's real, what do you think is causing that? Yeah, so so that's a good question. I guess I didn't really um, I just kind of jumped into that. So so yeah, it seems like we have um, slip partitioning, like a really kind of classic slip partitioning between thrusts in the in the back arc and and of course in the along the trench in the Christianary prism and then this strike slip motion um this comes uh, so in the bocono fault in venezuela so at the northern end of the north andean block that that fault is very well studied it is uh you know it's a clear strike slip fault um you know so so we have that constraint from the north here in the south uh, for a long time, mostly based on the morphology of the range, people have kind of assumed that that the fault cut into the core of the range. And here in this map, you can see. Um, can you guys see my mouse when I move it? In the in the image, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can see that there's a big jump in the range front here, and this jump right here aligns the Gulf of Guayaquil with the Payatanga section that has been studied by Stephen Bayes and his colleagues, which is this kind of linear valley here. Um, so the idea here was that the strike slip fault kind of jumps into the core and that the core would be the, the ideal place to accommodate it because is where we have the suture between the South American, uh, the South American uh, rocks proper versus the accreted terrain that came in um, in the Cretaceous. So if you look at if you, you know, you drive down any road that crosses this mountain range on the left, on the western Cordillera, all you're going to see is uh, pillow basalts deep water turbidites, gabbros, et cetera. And then on the other hand, it's all uh, um, um, it's all more felsic rock. So so there is a there is a suture here that is thought to be the the main feature that's being reactivated. Um, then once once the results from Nokia et al 2014 were published, then it became really clear that um, the, the motion is strike slip and it is being kind of partitioned right along the the core of the of the origin here. Great, thanks. I think Austin had raised his hand and then we've got a question from Rick in the chat. So let's have Austin's question first and move to the chat. Cool, thanks uh, Rafael for a super interesting talk relating all these disparate areas and bringing some ideas about what, what makes them similar and different. Um, I found that really intriguing. Uh, I had some specific questions about the um, the site that you showed around Quito with the large landslides and the faults and sort of ambiguity 
or not ambiguity between them. Um, and I had two questions about it. One is, uh, and maybe I, I missed this in your explanation of it, but it sounded like you were saying there or suggesting there's some ambiguity between whether these large things are, are faults or landslides or distinguishing exactly which ones. I wonder whether, um, if that is the case, have you looked at, or have people looked at the sort of the sediment budgets of the rivers, and is there an indication if, if you're moving these huge blocks down because you're incising so deeply, you must be removing that extra sediment or or backing up the rivers and building new sets of terraces and everything. Um, so I wonder if that is one avenue to kind of distinguish things if there was ambiguity. The second question is just, are these landslides, or is there an indication or a way to study whether they are related to earthquakes themselves? Um, so are, is there some association with the fault? Um, those are great questions, Austin. So so the the budget, um, uh, the sediment budget aspect, actually, uh, Mariela, who's a student who's working on this, is also, she's also looking at the sediment budget. It's, it's a little hard. I'm just going to bring up Google Earth here one second. Um, I'm going to show. I love so the talk answer that's got Google Earth. So. Okay, yeah. so this is um, so this is this is the Guayabamba depression right here. This is the city of Quito here. Um, this is the Guayabamba River. It kind of cuts through the Western Cordillera and then it drains into this um, kind of inner inner basin. So this inner basin here actually are formed by these giant coalescing alluvial fans that form kind of a bajada. So this this has been this was exactly what the point you brought up that 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 when Mariela and I upon discussing this was like well you have to remove all of these sediments in order to to create these slides and let them keep going and they must be somewhere so um, Mariela is actually trying to map uh, river terraces within the river valley but it's a really cased river valley so we think there's probably the sediment budget that's preserved as terraces in there is probably you know, a piddly amount compared to the total sediment budget. So the first order approximation that she's doing is extrapolating these flanks of the volcanoes into flat surfaces. And then she's just calculating the amount of sediment that has just to get a, a first order idea, you know, how much sediment would have to be removed for all this space that's being created for the landslide to have to be right because the, the alternative model is that we have these kind of blind strike slip faults that are uh, creating a pull apart in the subsurface that is creating the the extension that's causing to the uh, these big landslides to happen um so it's kind of it's kind of unsatisfying to me because it means there's like zero there's no way to prove whether the strike slip faults exist or not right and that model is just you know they're in the crust they're buried you can't really see it um, so we just want to see, you know, can you remove just, can we just have enough sediment removed here or how much sediment would have to be removed to not require any faults? So just have our compressional faults here creating the Quito kind of uh, meseta, the, the highland, and then have all the surface dynamics that we have of the Guayabamba depression being driven purely by surface processes. So once we have that volume, we're going to try to compare it to these um, to these big alluvial fans that we see in the coastal regions. So this is what would have been the forearc, right? The, 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 the subaquatic forearc at some point has now been uplifted fairly, fairly recently by the, you know, we think by the interaction with the Carnegie Ridge there. So, um, so that answers the first part of your question. Can you remind me the second part? 
That was a super interesting project, so that's cool. Um, the second part is basically, uh, is there an indication if they are landslides, which it looks like a lot of them are, uh, are they associated with earthquakes or are, is there a systematic dating of them? Is there a prospect that they may be correlated? Um, yeah, so so that's that's a good question. So there is a, um, uh, there's a professor at EPN, which is uh, a big university in Quito, and she, um, as part of her PhD, she's actually trying to um, look at the volcanic. So on top of everything here, we have these, this veneer of, of ash falls and pyroclastic flows. And um, she's going through systematically and trying to date them and look at subtle thickness variations to see if she can tease out whether these are just slow landslides or whether they're kind of catastrophic landslides. Um, she has also, uh, I've also been kind of working with her a little bit um, because she's really interested from the INSAR perspective um, to see if she can also get uh, these of the slides um, using. So it is, um, you know, TBD is the short answer, but but uh, Eliana, Eliana Jimenez is her name and she's, she's, she's trying to address exactly this question. Cool, thanks. So it is 11.32, which means we're officially leaving our time block behind. Um, Rafael has indicated that he's happy to hang around and answer more questions. So um, we had a question from Ruth in the chat. If Ruth, if you wanna jump in and ask that, go for it, or I can read it out. Um, sure, so uh, I enjoyed all of your talk and really liked how you covered a, a bunch of different subjects, all very exciting research. So going back to the early part of your talk, you were um, talking about the Gorka earthquake. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things you were mentioning had to do with the role of fault geometry. So I've been thinking and working on, uh, thinking about and working on fault geometry and its effects on how ruptures progressed for a lot of my earthquake career. So I'm always a big fan of fault geometry. And I was wondering um, in the case that you studied it's being proposed that the fault geometry was affected both the along dip and the along um, strike extents. Is that right? So it, it controlled the whole 3D fault geometry, uh, uh, rupture geometry. That that's that's um, what we what we're proposing for the Gorka earthquake in particular because it seems like you have these pinch points um, uh, right right here, kind of at the ends of the. But right where the fault nucleated. So the fault nucleated right on the on the eastern on the western end of the rupture patch, and it ripped from west to east. And they had very one of the things that at least um, seismologists uh, told us several times was that it was very curious how sharp the slip gradient was. So you know when the fault ended, it really ended abruptly. So uh, so um, yeah. So we do think that. It, it did affect it both the long strike because um, you know it essentially determined where it nucleated, as well as the the the, the eastern pinch point determined where it ended, and the the changes in the ramps kind of determined the the down dip extent of it. Okay, that's cool. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. We have a question about Ecuador in the chat, but before we jump back to that, I just wanted to follow up on this uh, Gorka idea briefly. Um, and in particular, Rafael, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more from you about the relationship between the Gorka earthquake specifically and the idea you presented about the influence of these sort of stretched shadows from locked segments um, and how 
that translates to ruptures that propagate all the way up to the sewalex and the and have a like actually a surface rupture or not um because mm -hmm. the gorka uh, didn't but there are some that have um so do you is there a piece of that story that you think this stretch shadow thing can tell us something about yeah that's that's a really um that's a really good and tough question <laughs> um so so the the what happens here kind of in the upper flat um under underlying the Sawalik is a big is a big question so right after the gorka earthquake um uh i think it was unavco folks somebody went out and they they set up um you know they were able to measure kind of post seismic post seismic uh, deformation and you know down dip there was a lot of post seismic you know thought to be just kind of uh, after slip or viscous relaxation you know there were there were people advocating for either either one of those mechanisms but up dip the the post seismic deformation was was a lot smaller but it seemed to be uh, very clearly re related to afterslip on the fault. So this um, the, the author right now escapes escapes me his name, but um, it was a Nature Geoscience paper, and they essentially argued based on that that they thought that the um, shallow part of the fault was velocity uh, strengthening, right? So that poses a big question, right? Because if it is velocity strengthening, then and and you do see surface rupture right uh ruptures at the surface which um I, I think you know uh there's very clear evidence of that um then you know you, you have either you know you have two kind of end members here one you just have kind of patches of velocity of velocity strengthening like the one that that uh, happened to to um abut the gorka rupture to the south and then you know some people would argue then that that the Gorka rupture stopped not because there was a, a intermediate ramp, but rather because you kind of uh, ran into a velocity strengthening patch, and that you have this kind of uh, um, this model of of these asperity models right along the the shallow the shallow earthquake. The other the other end member would be then that maybe the whole thing is velocity strengthening, and that the earthquakes are just huge, and they, they essentially can push their way through. The, the velocity strengthening patch, right? That that would really require a big earthquake. Um, the uh, the corollary to this might be, or or a, or a modifier to that idea, and this was something we really tried to wrap our heads around, and it was really hard to find a way to test this. Was that what we see right now that we think are surface ruptures are actually the afterslip of very large earthquakes? Um, so you know, we, when you go to the field. What you see, you know, you see these river terraces that are folded, that are uplifted. Um, uh, you know, you, you see ruptures in the shallow sediments. It's not like you ever find, you know, we're, we're way too shallow to find pseudotacolite or or anything like that. That would be unequivocal evidence of, of you know, rupture at seismic velocities. So, um, and, and this is something we, you know, I'm, I'm not advocating this is what's happening, but this was just when we were kind of spitballing what, you know, because this this question came up, right? Like, how how could we then uh, consolidate reconcile these two things? Um, um, you know, could these could these things be all uh, after slip that we're seeing after these large earthquakes and not rupture all the way to the surface? I think that the the when we bring in the stress shadow, then the issue there becomes that we can't really tell geodetically then whether like we can we can have you know 
one kilometer spacing GPS is a beautiful transect across the Siwalix, but it's going to be locked regardless of whether that is strengthening or not, because it's buffered by by this deep locking patch, which is very well constrained in the Nepal Himalaya, and it is kind of right under Mount Everest. So, um, and it's and it's laterally continuous. So um, that that's really buffering anything we can see at the surface. So at the end, we kind of like. <laughs> Um, you know, said, well, we're going to have to wait to an earthquake, right, <laughs> to, to see what, what what's happening at the shallow part. And that's kind of the conclusion we came in that paper about the stress shadows about underwater geodetic observations as well, that, um, you know, they're going to be really useful right after an earthquake where we can see kind of what, you know, what's happening. But in the interseismic period, shallow, you know, geodetic observations up to the trench are not really um, providing us with any, any, useful information so that's kind of an unsatisfying answer but <laughs> thanks that was that was great um okay one last question going back to ecuador this one is from jessica velasquez who says she had to jump off but was interested to uh, revisit the recording later to hear your answer so uh, her question is that much of the work in ecuador seems to be concentrated on surface expression and relying on block models to partition the slip rates along necessarily simplified boundaries. Do you have a sense for the amount of those slip estimates that may be accommodated aseismically through things like analytic deformation creep, et cetera, um, especially as you mentioned, the higher heat flow around the volcanoes and examples you've shown of lots of distributed fault systems? Um, that's a really good question, yeah. So so there have been some um, really nice papers like in 2016 from Hugo Yepes and colleagues um, where they, they do these kind of like big block models of, of Equal and they try to say what are the main sources and they try to kind of put a ge geodynamic framework to the the seismic hazard. But as, as Jessica says, like those are are you know simplified block models. And um, we have it you know, like we know, for example, that we have internal deformation in the blocks, right? With the, the Quito fault system. You know the work by uh, uh, Alexandra Alvarado uh, that she did there, uh, um, constraining that was was you know really clear. We know we have that active deformation. I've been working with some colleagues here on the coast, which is it's a little harder. That that is just like everything is jungle and low lying, but you do get these uh, what's called the coastal cordillera here. It's very low lying mountains, but or at least for Ecuadorian standards, it's very very low mountains. But um, you do get some some nice outcrops there, and it seems like there's also evidence of some uh, deformation being accommodated within this kind of four arc block, right? So so already, you know, we're, we're departing from the from the idea, kind of the first order idea of all the deformation being accommodated right along the block boundaries. And on top of that, if you put the, um, the volcanoes, right, which is a huge um, thing that uh, Jessica uh, mentioned, um, you're, you're putting these these kind of um, gooey anisotropic blocks throughout the whole inter-Andean Valley. And Ecuador is kind of particular that if you, if you follow the volcanic arc into Colombia, it becomes a, or, or, or into Chile, down into Chile, there's a single line of volcanoes. But when you go here in Ecuador, you have volcanoes along the Western Cordillera, along the inter-Andean Valley, along the, the, the Cordillera Real or, or Eastern Cordillera. And you even have volcanoes all the way in the Amazon. So, so what we really have is this swath of, of volcanism where there's about 80 uh, quaternary volcanoes over, you know, maybe 
300 kilometer span that um, really makes the whole system uh, much more complicated. You don't have rigid blocks that are being bound by 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 these faults. So, um, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but that might even be the answer as to why we don't see um, why we don't see these things, right? Like where where you have the most volcanoes is is actually where where the you know you you really miss you lose the the surface expression of the fault. So um, it might be that everything is being taken up on these on these small faults that are widely distributed and related to rheological um, uh, properties uh, that are volcano determined, and that's why we can't see it. It would leave the question of you know, we do have a few big earthquakes, right? Like the Ibarra earthquake of 1868, that's like a magnitude seven thought to be based on intensity measurements. The Riobamba one in the 16th century may be a little bigger. Um, and it's hard to envision, um, it's hard to envision like small little segmented faults like that that are widespread creating a big, a big earthquake like that. So, um, so I think there still must be some large segments that we're missing somewhere that are capable of creating these big earthquakes, or maybe the intensity measurements are, you know, the locations based on intensity are a little off. I mean, the really the only records from then are, especially from the 1500s and 1600 ones, is wherever there was a Spanish settlement, there's a record. But you know, so so we say, okay, the earthquake was in Rio Obama, but that's because where the Spaniards were. But you know, it didn't. You know, there there might be a large uncertainty in those locations that, you know, it might have been part of the Payatanga segment, for example, or something like that. So um that's that's a really good point um i wish jessica was here so she could chime in and <laughs> give her two cents about that um but but yeah i think i think it's definitely part of the answer here great thanks very much i was able to rejoin um <laughs> this is jessica okay great um, so I did get to hear your your response. Yeah, um, I just Ecuador has just perplexed me just because of all the the complicated the you have the subduction plus you have the the flexure from the Carnegie Ridge, and so I was just interested in in your take and your perspective on um, how those motions on for those pretty simplified block models um, might be distributed in the real yeah. system you're looking it is, at. It is a great point. And, and yeah, just to be honest, I hadn't really thought about it very much um, until you brought up the question. So that that is a really good thought provoking question. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, thank you, everyone, for attending this week's seminar. And thanks, Rafael, for a great presentation. Uh, we're going to conclude the formal seminar and recording now. I know we've overshot by quite a bit. Um, but if anyone would like to stick around for a couple more minutes to introduce themselves to our speaker or to discuss anything in a more casual environment, uh, you can continue to use this Teams event to mingle and chat. So thank you very much. Thank you all as well. Yeah.